So let's go through the word of the Lord. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2 as we continue our series entitled Healthy Church. And we read today Titus 2 verses 1 through 10. Uh, the focus will be on verses 1 through 5, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the rest of the passage. We'll, we'll read the entire passage for context's sake. Titus 2, 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Father, we are so thankful for the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. This is truth, capital T, and how much we need it in our lives and how much we need it today. And we're thankful for the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, your children, who teaches us, who enlightens our understanding, and who will show us Christ. So we ask, Lord, that once again, by your word and by your spirit, we may be built up in the faith and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So two, three weeks ago, we started this series called Healthy Church, and one of the statements I made early on was that a healthy church is a church that is filled with believers who are, number one, committed to Christ, and number two, committed to his church. That's where it all begins. In fact, some of the most healthy churches are found in places where persecution is high. These churches don't have the bells and the whistles that we have. They simply love Jesus, love him, and they simply love and are committed to his church. That is a sign of a healthy church. When we say a healthy church is filled with believers that are committed to the church, what we really mean is that they are committed to one another, committed to those who make up the church. Because when we talk about the church, we often think in terms of the building, but biblically, biblically speaking, the church is not a building, it is a people. The Greek word used for church in the New Testament literally means called out once. Those who are called out of the world, out of sin, and are now gathered into a new community of faith, the church. And such a church, a local church, is healthy when it is marked by healthy leadership, as we saw two weeks ago, by healthy doctrine, which we saw last week, and as we will see today, by healthy community, healthy relationships. Because the church is not a country club that we join. 
but it's a family that we are born into. A family where God designs us to have intentional, meaningful relationships and conversations about life and about our walk with Christ. A family that you trust, where you can be vulnerable and ask for prayer and find people that will help shoulder your burden. I love the way Megan Hill, who is, by the way, a pastor's wife in Massachusetts, in her book, A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church, puts it. And I quote, we will open our hearts and our doors. We will pull up another chair to the dinner table and add another name to our prayer list. We will give them our groceries and our furniture and our smiles. We will share their grief and their disappointments. We will look for ways to show love. That is a healthy community. This church culture of togetherness is a must if the church wants to thrive. Not just survive, but thrive and be healthy. It is not the icing on the cake, a nice extra. It is part of the cake. This is how God designed church to be. And that is very much on Paul's mind as he, in chapter 2, starts talking to different groups in the church. At least he's talking to Titus, but this is what Titus needs to teach different groups of people in the church. It's all about relationships. It's all about following God's word and how we need one another to do that. He begins in verse 1 by saying, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, meaning that unlike the false teachers that he talked about in verse 1 who were teaching false doctrine, he needs to make sure that what he teaches is according to the scriptures. And what he has to teach is incredibly practical. As we see, as he addresses the different groups in the church, he gets down to the nitty-gritty. So let me draw you a map of where are we going to go this morning with this passage. We're going to look, first of all, at who and what. So who are the different groups that Paul wants Titus to address? And then what is it that he needs to ensure that is taught to each of these individual groups? Who and what? And then after that, we're going to look at why and how. What is the motive that should drive Christians to obedience when it comes to what is written right here in the Word of God? And how are we going to carry it out? What is the manner, what has God equipped us with so that we can follow His Word and be blessed for it and make a difference in this world? Which will bring us back to the concept of healthy relationships in the church and the importance of it. So let's begin with the who and what. So the first group that is addressed in verse 2 is the group of older men. 
Well, you have to stop here for a minute because the question arises immediately, who is older and who is younger, right? Now, it's helpful to know that the terms that Paul uses for young and old, younger and older, he is thinking most of all about age, but those groups are not rigid categories. You know, in other words, like even the, the group young was, was a, a group of people that, whose age spanned longer than what we think of today. I chuckled when I went to visit someone at the, um, in the hospital a couple years ago. He was a, an older man, mid-80s. I think you're older then. And, uh, and I'd never met him before. I was new at the church, and so I introduced myself, and uh, he said to me, so how old are you, young man? I like that. And I said, well, I'm like late 40s. He says, oh, you're just a young pup. And I'm like, well, not to my kids, but I guess that's all about perspective, right? So, so don't get too hung up about what category you're in. But basically, we're talking about people that are either in the first half or the second or third half, if you will, of their lives. And Paul addresses first through Titus this group of older men. And he says older men in the church must be marked, first of all, by sober-mindedness. In verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded. The idea there is someone who is stable, clear-headed. The assumption is made that as you mature in age, as a believer, you will also mature in spiritual maturity. Now, obviously, that doesn't fly where, when you are a recent convert and you're an older person, but by and large, most Christians come to know Christ before they're 18 years of age. It's the highest percentage. And so the assumption is that as you mature in age, you also mature in your relationship with Christ. And you become sober-minded, even-keeled. The kind of person that a young person in the church will look up to and say, I know he's not perfect, but here's a model of what a godly man looks like. And boy, is that necessary today. Because many of our young people grow up in families where they do not have godly parents. And so they look to the men in the church for what it means to be a follower of Christ, a man, a father, a husband. A leader. Paul goes on and says they must be dignified. That does not mean he must wear a three-piece suit. That's not why I'm wearing a jacket, by the way. Doesn't mean he's a stuffy guy. It means worthy of respect. Not boring, but understanding that there is a seriousness to life. That life is more than just fun and games. He has come to understand that, has experienced so much of life, that there is this sober-mindedness, this dignity to the way he lives life. Self-controlled, the next one that Paul lists. This one actually shows up in some of the other groups as well. It has the idea of the ability to curb your desires and your impulses, not be a slave of whatever you want to do or feel like. You can say no to yourself. That's a discipline. 
that you have to learn. It's not natural. Paul says that's something that should mark older believers, older men. And he says they have to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Sound in faith, faith in God. Knowing that God can really be trusted. That his word is absolutely true. That he will not disappoint you. These men have experienced that in their lives. Sound, robust, healthy, and love. Love, not just for God, that's where it all starts, but love for other people. Love for the lost. Love for his church. And steadfastness. Endurance. These older men have lived long enough that they know there's a lot of brokenness in the world and there's a lot of brokenness in their own soul. They've endured hardships, but they do not panic when things don't turn out as they expected because they know God and they trust his word. So to you, older men this morning, I ask you, is that what you strive for? Is this what you pray for? Is this what you long to be? Because it is so needed for the glory of God and for the upbuilding of his church that this church is filled with older men who are an example to those who are younger. Verse 3, Paul switches to another category. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Reverent in behavior. This means that holiness of heart, that's the reference part, goes public. That's the behavior part. This woman has determined many years ago that she belongs to God, body, and soul. And it just oozes out of her. The words she speaks, the way she acts, not perfect, but she is so filled with God and controlled by the Holy Spirit that she has this holiness inside of her that just cannot be stopped. And it's so attractive and so appealing. She values character and obedience over appearance and image, which is elevated in our culture to an absurd status. The way you look and the image that you can produce, how other people perceive you, how other people think about you. Man, we're, we're all subject to that idol from time to time, aren't we? The Bible calls it the fear of man. Not being afraid of them per se, but their opinion is so powerful that it determines my behavior. Older women are not to have that. They should also not be slanderers. The word for slanderer is used in the New Testament as a title for Satan, who is the father of lies. Paul says old women in the church should be lovers, not of lies, but of the truth. Know what to say, when to say it, also know when to keep their mouths zipped. And 
particularly keep confidentiality. Understand that gossip is destructive, that it can destroy entire churches, families, relationships, and so they stay far away from that. Not slaves to much wine. Notice Paul does not say that she should not drink wine. There is no command in the Bible that tells us that the usage of alcohol is contrary to God's will. There are many, many, many warnings against it. The point here is she should not be enslaved to it, not addicted to it. And that, dear friends, is a very timely comment for today. Because statistics show that the rates of alcohol use and alcohol misuse among women is rising, skyrocketing especially among young women. Just a few months ago, I came across a term that I'd never heard before, so I researched it because it fascinated me. It was the term wine mom. And so I found out that there is a whole culture out there of young women in particular that reference, to them, reference themselves as wine moms and this first started out as a joke with memes like, and I read, wine is to moms what duct tape is to dads, it fixes everything. Ha ha. Motherhood powered by love, fueled by coffee, sustained by wine. The truth of the matter is no one starts off wanting to be a slave to alcohol, but it happens much more often than we realize. And so when Paul is talking to Titus and he says, Titus, this is what older women need to be taught. This is what they need to be like. He says, not slanderous and not slaves to wine. Controlled not by the substance of alcohol, but controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Man, how much we need that. And then they are in the place to teach what is good. And so train, better translation is encourage younger Women. We'll talk about that second part in a minute. Suffice to say, for now, then they have something good to share, something good to pass along to another younger generation. They're in a place of spiritual maturity where they can bless others. So I say to you, older women, is that how you want to be? Is that the impact you want to have Oh, may Garden Chapel be filled with older women who have gone deep with God and who are available to share what they have learned of their God and his word with anyone that is eager to learn. Older women. Then Paul switches again in verse 4 and 5 where he says, and so train the young women, speaking about older women, teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now next week, we're going to focus on what God says to younger men, what he says to Titus, and what he says to bond servants. So young men, you're not off the hook. Come back. But what does God say to younger women? 
It's obvious that he focuses, when you look at the list, mostly at young wives and young moms because marriage and having children is a common experience for women, for young women. Not that marriage and motherhood is superior to singleness. Singleness, Paul says, can be a gift. Singleness can also be something that you don't choose. As a result of the fall, that can be your lot in life under the providence of God. Think death, divorce. But even if you're a single young woman, there's an attitude and a spirit here that should exhibit your life to the glory of God and to the building up of his church. And those who are younger now and not married yet or mothers yet, this is what God wants you to model once you get to this stage. And he has done a, such a privilege, or such a, yeah, a privilege it is to know what he expects because he knows what is best for us. So here we go, the first one. Love husbands, their husbands, and their children. It's mentioned first because for women that should be their main concern and focus. This is about devotion. Devotion meaning putting the welfare of my husband and my children above my own. And I tell you, in our culture, that is outdated, archaic, and even seen as the new buzzword, oppressive. If you believe, young wife, young mother, that that is your God-given goal, first, to love under the glory of God, to love your husband and your children, you're right on the ball, but you're out of step with culture. Because culture tells you fulfillment cannot be found at home. It can only be found in a career outside of home, which is a lie straight from hell. Love husbands and love your children. Paul goes on and says they must be self-controlled, which is the same word that was used for older men. Being able to curb desires and impulses. He says they must be pure. He has in mind sexual purity for all. And if married, that means sexual faithfulness to your husband. There was a time in history and in the history of the church where the idea that sexual addictions and sexual promiscuity and struggling with sexual temptation was exclusively a guy thing. That is not true. It's a human thing. And so when Paul instructs Titus to instruct the older women to teach the younger women, he says, you make sure that they hear the word of the Lord, which is, I am holy, and therefore you be holy, also when it comes to sexuality, not just in your actions, but also up here in your thought life. Purity. He goes on and says, working at home. Now, this is like hitting a bee's nest with a stick, right? But it's in the Bible. I didn't write it. So what does it mean? Let's first say what it does not mean. It does not mean that a woman or a wife 
where a mom cannot have a paying job, be it in ministry or in a secular workplace outside of her home. That's not what Paul is saying. You have received gifts that are ready to be used. You have received callings in different seasons of life, and this may very well be one of them. What it does mean is that women carry the, listen carefully, primary, not only, primary responsibility biblically for the home so that if working outside the home takes priority over caring for the home, the husband, and the children, she goes against the Bible and she goes against God's spirit if her heart is sensitive to him. To those of us who have families with young children, I say to you, think long and hard before mom ends up spending big chunks of time away from home, especially if it means handing over the training of your children to someone else. It is your responsibility, mom and dad, your privilege. Parenting is absolutely a joint effort between mom and dad. Too many dads shirk their responsibility. Well, you're much better at it, so you just do it. Not good. Not biblical either. It's a joint effort. However, the God-given roles that's part of his creative design, the man and woman, the husband and wife, to mother and father are not interchangeable. They're rooted in God's creation and are good. Now, I know that there can be very difficult situations where this is difficult to apply. I think especially of you single moms out there. I have a lot of respect for you. Raising children by yourself is quite a challenge. And having to meet the needs, the financial needs of your family by yourself is almost impossible. And so I think there is a responsibility there as well for other believers in the church to help shoulder that burden. But this is the model. And I also understand that life is expensive. Tell me about it. I just moved. And I understand that you may feel that you need two incomes, full-time jobs to pay the bills. But I also ask you to be honest and I'll just say in general, sometimes that argument is used as an excuse to not want to lower the standard of living. I like this lifestyle. And I really don't want to make any adjustments. Just remember, choices always have consequences. Workers at home, kind, Paul says meaning gentle, considerate, especially when you're in a home where you're taken for granted. Let's face it, us husbands, we can take our wives for granted. Children can take their mother for granted. To remain kind and gentle and considerate is a challenge. You need the Spirit of God 
You need God himself. And then Paul has one more list, item on the list, submissive to their own husbands. Notice he does not say submissive to all husbands. There is a culture out there, and unfortunately it's still in the church, capital C, that sees women as inferior and treats them as such. That's unbiblical and ungodly. There is no place for sexism and no place for male chauvinism. But God did say to wives, submit yourself to your husband as you submit yourself to the Lord. The idea of submission is literally to place yourself under. So it's a, it's a decision that you make to place yourself under the leadership of your husband, to recognize that biblically God has assigned that role to him and you for him to trust him and to lead you and the family and guide the family as a servant leader with sacrificial love. In Ephesians 5, three times I think it is, Paul says to wife, submit to your husband, submit to your husband, submit to your husband. And you would think that Paul would then say to the husband, well, you lead your wife, you lead your wife. He says, you love your wife. As Christ loved the church, how did he love the church? By giving himself up for her. Is that how we lead men? Really? We have to admit that as husbands, at times we fail miserably, and I point the finger at myself as well. Sometimes the leadership is totally absent. Sometimes it has become so domineering. It's not how God wants us to lead. But God does say to the wife, unless your husband leads you or into sin, you follow him. And by following him, you show that you trust God's design for marriage, even if it includes following a fallen man as a leader. Oh, how we need Christ for a godly marriage and godly homes and a godly church. So why did Paul command Titus to teach this? And why does God expect us to live a certain way as a young man and a young woman and an older woman and an older man? Obviously, the reason is clear, first of all, that this is how we will thrive. God's commands give life, not death. But here's another reason that the text gives us in verse 5. Why? So look at what Paul says in verse 5 when he's just challenged the younger women to be self-controlled and pure. And then he ends by saying this, that the word of God may not be reviled not be blasphemed. Now, in the context, that little sentence is tied to what he said to young women, what God expects of young women. Well, as we will see next week, he will say something similar to Titus and something similar to bond servants. So we may assume that this point applies to every group, to every Christian, to every person who's part of the church. And this is the point that he's making. There is an evangelistic 
aspect to following Christ. So picture this, a non-submissive, gossipy, uncontrolled Christian. That is a poor testimony of the gospel. And so Paul says, as he writes to Titus, this is what the standard is for younger women. Yeah, because I say so, and that should be enough for all of us. Because these are commands that give you life, not death. But also because the world is watching. And our testimony is at stake. The word of God can be dragged through the dirt when he sees those who say they're followers of Christ live in a way that's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. We can so blend in with the world and the worldly standards when they're unbiblical that our way of living is not different. And we lose our credibility and we lose the power of our testimony. By definition, as a Christian, we are countercultural. We march to the beat of a different drum. We go upstream, not downstream. May God grant us his spirit as we heed his word, which presents a standard that we cannot keep in our own strength. That's why we need the word. That's why we need the spirit. And that's why we need one another. Because that's the final question. How are we going to do this? God gave us a spirit that empowers. He gave us his word that directs and comforts. And he gave us one another. And here we loop back to where we started. That a healthy church is characterized by healthy relationships. Healthy community. So look one more time in verse 5. Verse 4, 5. This is where I skipped. Coming back to it now, speaking to older women, he says, they are to teach what is good, and now listen to this, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. God is saying to the older women, do not hoard your experience. Do not hoard your knowledge. Pass it along. Your counsel, your insight, your experience with Christ this refers to discipling, mentoring, coming alongside a younger, less mature believer. And even though it is not said explicitly, it stands to reason that this culture of discipleship that's coming alongside this more mature, usually older, helping the less mature usually younger, this culture is not exclusive to older women, younger women, but this pattern applies to all, men as well. Where the older, more mature mentors, disciples, the younger, less mature in the faith. Now, this is important, so listen carefully. Our culture sidelines older people and idolizes youth. It should not be that way in the church of Jesus Christ. Right here, there is a prime place for those who are further along in age, usually in spiritual maturity as well. They're needed. Brother, sister, you're in the second, third half of your life. 
You are needed in this church. There is a ministry and a mission for you. Do not let those years of walking with Christ go to waste. And younger people, I'll include myself into that group for now, don't be so stubborn that you think you know it all, that you don't need it. I also have seen churches that have been taken hostage by older folks who refuse any kind of change, even when it's changed that biblically is negotiable and not the inspired word of God. Don't get cranky, older people. Don't look down on the younger people and say, oh, it was better in the early days. You know, the Bible says it's not of wisdom to say those things, Ecclesiastes, and how often we say it. Here is the thing that I want to leave you with, and then I'll close with two quick applications. God wants Garden Chapel, let's just keep it through our small church here, to be an intergenerational church, not just a multi-generational church. So this is what a multi-generational church looks like. We have different groups of people that exist side by side in the church. We got children, we got teens, we got young adults, we got middle-aged people, we have older seniors, and they are part of the church, but they exist side by side. There's very limited interaction. Now, we may have our own activities, and that's not totally wrong. You can understand that a teen has certain kinds of needs, needs to interact with kids in their own age group. But this is a multi-generational church, part of the same church, but limited interaction. This is what an intergenerational church looks like. There's cross-pollination across the age group. This will not happen unless it's intentional and deliberately done by you. It won't happen. We'll stay a multi-generational church, not an intergenerational church. This is when relationships are formed across the age groups. I know this was done in the past. COVID messed everything up. I'm sure it'll happen again. 60, 70, 80 people of you all packed up in that bus over there that Paul is still having to fix. Going on a mission trip, a family mission trip, right, Mike? On a roof, gathering sticks. Church in Massachusetts, they organized, the youth group organized a young at heart banquet, invited the older people in the church, had some of them shared a testimony, played games together. It was amazing what that did in the life of the church. There was cross-pollination. We should want to be a church of young and old and everything in between. Jam-packed with healthy community, healthy relationships to the glory of God and to the growth of this church. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? And it's going to take effort on our part. So here are two practical suggestions for you. First of all, if you're not in the habit of doing this, start praying for the entire church. Get out the church directory. If you don't have one, pick up a copy in the lobby. I know it's not up to date, 
but it's what we have. And you start praying through that directory. Pray for each name. Pray for the families. Pray for the children. You may have no clue who they are. Pray for those that you sit next to in church today. All of this helps to have this perspective of we're a family, not just a bunch of individuals that happen to worship in the same building. That's not church. And then, this is maybe a bit harder for some of us, talk to different people after the church. So this is my challenge to you for after this service that is almost done. Have you noticed what usually happens when we're done with church? We usually end up talking to the people that we know well. It's comfortable, it's natural. I'm asking you to branch out, to strike up a conversation with someone that you either don't know or don't know well. Maybe even someone for a different generation. Ooh, scary. I shouldn't make light of it because I understand that for some of us this comes easy. We're not all Amy, which is a gift. And yet, this is what it means to be a family. So you go up to them. If you don't know them, you ask their name. You ask what they're, what they're doing. You ask how long they've been coming here. You ask they feel part of this church. You ask how you can pray for them. I'm just listing the questions that I have been asking for the last three, four weeks, and I keep on asking because I need to get to know you. And I use the church directory to pray for each one of you on a regular basis because I want my heart to be wrapped around each one of you and yours around mine and ours. So let's seek the Lord for his strength. He can give us the desire and he can give us the power to be that kind of a church. Young and old and everything in between, jam-packed with healthy community, spurring one another on to love and good deeds to the glory of God and the building above this church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us you love us in Jesus Christ, Lord. We don't understand that kind of love because we, at times, are very unlovable. And as a church, we can be very unlovable. Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts wide for one another so that this church can grow deeper, that it can bear fruit upwards and take root downwards. Lord, help us to have eye for one another and to be the church that you want us to be, healthy and robust, with healthy leadership, healthy doctrine, and healthy community. We pray all of that in your son's precious name. Amen.